Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix. I'm Sophie De Benedetto. We are joined by a couple of co-hosts today. We have Lars Wickman. Trevligt råkas. Oh my god, what was that? Swedish. But what did nice you say? Nice to meet you. Okay. See, Alex can't steal that or vice versa. And we have Alex Kutmo. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. And we are joined by a very special guest, Meryl Dakin. Hello. And Meryl is joining us with her cat, Swamp Cat, who was, I want to say, born in a swamp. Yes, she was born in a swamp in Louisiana. And we found her in a cat colony that was taken care of by these tugboat captains. I'm not even making this up. (laughs) That is like the most Louisiana thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's like a superhero origin story. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or... If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So Meryl is joining us today. She is an engineer working with Elixir at Frame.io. And Meryl is actually one of the few people that I like learned Elixir with back at the Flatiron School. So I feel like we've sort of been through the wars together. Welcome, Meryl. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Nice to see you again, Sophie. Yeah, Um, so glad you could join us. I feel like I sort of ruined this question already, but (laughs) I often like to kick off by asking people to tell us a little bit about how you got into Elixir. What was your own Elixir origin story like? I assume it began in a swamp with a group of tugboat captains. Yes. After that, I was working at Flatiron School. And I think as I've heard a lot of other Elixir origin stories, there was like one Elixir advocate that spread the message of Elixir to the rest of the group. And we were working on our legacy Rails app and decided we wanted to start introducing microservices. And we wanted to write those in Elixir. And so I think that the most interesting part of it was looking at Elixir at the beginning and thinking, oh, this looks kind of like Ruby. I think this is going to be like my third programming language that I'm going to start writing and it's going to be fine. I'm going to get this pretty well. And then realizing that it was so cognitively different to start going from our like object oriented approach and learning functional programming through Elixir. And it was so much fun. And so I was really excited to continue working with it when I came to Frame and found that they had also been, they'd transitioned their entire backend into Elixir a couple of years ago. So it's been really nice to continue working in it while being there. So that's actually a perfect segue. Tell us a little bit about Frame.io and what problems you guys are using Elixir to solve there. Yeah, so Frame.io is essentially a video collaboration tool. When I first started learning about it, I kind of thought about it as like Google Docs for videos. So as an editor, I can upload something and my clients can comment on it at timestamps. They can make annotations on it. I can go through those comments, sort them, kind of figure out what needs to be done, check them off. And it reduces a lot of back and forth between like emailing a file to somebody and have them write in the email, like at which times they want something to happen. It just consolidates a lot of that work. So we have a lot of stuff going on in the product. There's a lot of live things that are happening. There's live commenting. Um, We have uploads. We've got asset sharing. We have a lot of levels of privacy that we're managing. We have a notification system and a homegrown event bus. So it's a lot of things that are happening at the same time. And I wasn't there when the decision was made to transition from Ruby to Elixir. But it seems like we've been... like. Coming into the code base, even at three years old, it was still so like maintained and like clear. And the event bus has continued working well for us, up, you know, to where we are now. So I think we've solved a lot of the issues we were seeing with maintaining a lot of these concurrent processes and the level of like data that we're dealing with well with Elixir. So are there still any uh, legacy apps at Frame.io written in Ruby? And are those on the, the docket for replacement or is it all... All Elixir now everywhere. It's all Elixir now everywhere, which is great. Very exciting. We, I know that there are some times where you get some legacy, some legacy stuff that is still lingering around. And I've been really proud of the way that we've made transitions like that lately. We still have a couple of like legacy API stuff that we are dealing with, but for the most part, everything has transitioned. And even as recently as the next iteration of our product that we are using, that we're building right now, we transitioned from using our RESTful API to a GraphQL approach. And we built a proxy for the front end to use before the back end had implemented native GraphQL. 
And I was so concerned <laughs> that that was going to be the thing that would hang around forever. And I'm so proud to say that it has gone as of like a week and a half ago. So I think that there's a lot of intention around trying to mitigate tech debt, which is great to see. Yeah, it's pretty good. And congratulations on uh, closing out that proxy there. So when you say proxy, was it like you had like a facade in front of your RESTful endpoints or how did that work? Yeah. So as we were starting to think about the next iteration of the product that we were building, the front end team was able to move more quickly. And so we built, we knew that we wanted to use GraphQL in the next version that we were working on. So we built this proxy in Node that would talk directly to our REST API. So it was doing a ton of reconciliation and getting the responses, putting them together, giving them back to the client. So while we were writing these client side queries and preparing like for the kinds of data that we wanted to ingest from the back end, we were doing a ton of manual stuff to make sure that that was happening. So we had real data to work with and we kind of knew where we were going with it. And then at some point we made a code freeze on that proxy as our backend team starts developing using Absinthe and creating our, our native GraphQL endpoints in, in our backend. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I definitely have questions about working with Absinthe, but maybe first, why did you guys decide to make the switch from REST to GraphQL? So that was interesting. I This is the first time I've worked with GraphQL and I didn't, I wasn't evangelized to it before now, but I think that there were, again, people that had used it in the past and knew that it was going to be something that would solve a lot of the issues that we were seeing currently, one of them being payload size. So the REST endpoints that we have that are serving up the content that we need on the front end, the payload sizes are getting larger and larger. The things that we need to ask for in different places are varying. So while we may not need all the information in one spot, we need are hesitating to ask for more endpoints. We're hesitating to ask for like those endpoints to be sort of, we're, we're hesitating to ask if we can add like query parameters or something like that into endpoints in order to make them different for the different places that we need them in. So there just was a lot of data coming back across the server. And that was one of the big reasons why we wanted to try GraphQL was because we thought we could lower that. The other reason is as we are thinking through a new version of this, we want the front end to be as flexible as possible and to sort of help dictate exactly what they're looking for, which in turn can help the back end figure out the business logic and the places where we need to connect data. So that was another big part about using GraphQL. And it's now that I've started working in it, I think the development experience is just really fun for the front end user. And for the back end user, it can also be more liberating because you're able to communicate better about what we actually need and we can we can make those connections as needed, not necessarily like pump everything into the same endpoint. Right, like you're less constrained by the dictates of REST. Like when you're saying we hesitated to add, you know, more parameters to a given REST endpoint to like customize it so that it can be reused again and again. Like I would definitely have that same hesitation because it's very much not in the spirit of REST to just make a REST endpoint for, let's say, reading X resource, actually do four different things depending on the you know parameters that you shove into that request. Yeah. And I think that, right, the other thing is that we don't want to just continue to create these smaller endpoints that are being called from the first one, right? It just, there's so much cascading effect from what we were getting that we wanted to try to separate that as much as possible and create one place for the client side to iterate as we were developing the various like pages and like structures that we want to present with this new product and be able to change what they need at, at a given time. And that was kind of more on the front end side when we were using the proxy because we were sort of like, okay, now we can kind of like know where these REST endpoints are and pull this data together. But now that we've separated it and got the proxy out, um, because GraphQL is self-documenting, there's a lot of like education and, and learning going on on the front end team that I haven't seen before with when we had a REST API because they can look and see what is there, what is available, what what they can pull into different components. So I think that's also really interesting is like increasing this communication layer between the backend and the frontend about the domain itself. Right. It sounds like the teams, if you have split it up backend and frontend, which sounds like it might be the case, it's there you're sort of like more loosely coupled and it sounds like it helps you or it's helping you guys move faster. 
I think that it is. And, and there's a lot of interesting conversations going on between the teams now as well, because everybody has been working on this project, either from the front end or the back end side. And I've seen a lot of like really interesting conversation happening around performance, which is now more of a front end concern than it was, because as you're writing these queries, like you do have the ability to really write something that could be extremely expensive. So um, there is more onus placed on um, the front end in that way to to be aware of when those joins are happening and, and how deep to go and then like surface that to the back end team and have that back and forth about what that looks like in the moment. On the topic of uh, joins, do you guys have any like metrics or, or best practices that you've all to kind of ensure that, uh, you know, these queries aren't taking in the orders of seconds to, to complete? Or That's really interesting. It's something we're talking about right now um, that we haven't started implementing yet. I was actually going to, I know that Sophie, you've had an Sounds like a problem telemetry. for telemetry. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would definitely instrument those endpoints and, you know, send it off to wherever Datadog or Grafana or whatever y'all are using. And yeah. Have you implemented telemetry with GraphQL yet? I have not. We are using GraphQL uh, on my team currently, but, you know, now we're we'll at GitHub as of yet. Maybe stay tuned. So... We do have a lot of instrumentation in the product that I work on currently, though, not, you know, telemetry because it's not Elixir. Uh, what are we using? Like the Go stats package or wrapper around the Go stats package. It's pretty rudimentary, honestly. It's like we capture the start time of the endpoint that receives the request. And then at the end of the endpoint, before we send the response to the client, we just log the duration that has elapsed since that start time and that log on our internal service goes to Datadog and for our customers because it's like an on-premise installation that they'll put on their service it just logs to a file so I would even just start with something like that and then you can kind of iterate from there and telemetry will make it so easy to kind of abstract that pattern away and sort of sprinkle it throughout. Yeah I know for a fact data loader has telemetry events because I wrote that PR so data loader definitely oh, awesome. uh, definitely emits durations and, and and whatnot for for resolving those things but then i know absent also has a lot of telemetry events that it emits so it might be easy mm -hmm. to hook in and for my my new project that i'm working on uh, promx i i do plan on leveraging that what's promx alex tell us all about it maybe maybe next week maybe next week okay yeah maybe we'll do a panel episode and we'll dig into it a little bit more yeah we're not getting a teaser I heard Grafana yeah, I and so. the right, I'll, I'll in the a, same I'll, sentence, and I was I'll, like, "This I'll is Alex." A, I'll give a very, very quick teaser. So, with all the libraries out there in the Elixir ecosystem surfacing telemetry events, Promix is effectively like an opinionated way of collecting all these metrics, and then it comes with like accompanying Grafana dashboards, and it also has mixed commands where you can use the Grafana API, upload all your dashboards on application start, and so then within like five minutes, you've got metrics and dashboards for all the things elixir and that's the that elevator very pitch. powerful yeah very powerful i'm excited to learn about that yeah but speaking of libraries and speaking of absence tell us a little bit about what it's like to work with absence through graphql because i honestly haven't done anything with it but given that you know i am in graphql land i'm very curious yeah i i think that absence doesn't feel like a huge step from elixir writing absence is very familiar. It feels very straightforward when you're starting to work in it. I think that the bigger step comes from cognitively thinking about our domain from a REST endpoint, from a RESTful way in, into a GraphQL way. The things that I had trouble at the beginning kind of figuring out was when I'm adding new places for data to be exposed, does that become its own query? Does it become a field on another query that we already have. And, and I, I think learning those patterns were much more like difficult than, than understanding the BSL because that feels very straightforward. I'm going through the Craft GraphQL APIs in Elixir with Absinthe book right now. That one, this one, and it's, it's great. It's a really straightforward read and it has really good code examples. So that's all really it feels very good and, and easy to write absinthe, but I remember starting to add some data that we wanted. We're basically right now just copying a lot of the functionality that we have in our current product. And so trying to do that with GraphQL instead of REST now, we're adding data about like the comments that we're showing for an asset, right? And one of those things I'm working on is like the filtering of comments. We can filter by comment authors. 
So when I wanted to surface comment authors for an asset, the first thing I did was made uh, a query for it on in AdSense. And when we started to look at it, um, people who have been working with GraphQL and AdSense longer than I have were like, actually, we want to limit um, the places where we're entering the graph here. So we're not going to let people go directly to this comment author's query. That's not what we want to surface. We want to be able to surface that in the scope of something that they're already going to be working with, like the asset itself. So instead of making that its own query, we added that as a field onto the asset. And so that going through the asset, you can call on that comment authors and see the comment authors that are linked to that asset, um, which is connected to the, the whole concept of using the graph and using those relationships as first-class citizens. Um, but I would definitely say that like absence itself feels feels very familiar and and fun to write. And it's more of like thinking through how to do it that were the the things that I was working through. It's funny because I feel like I feel like that's such a common theme with folks that we talked to on the show, you know, tackling X problem in Elixir. And pretty much always what people have to say is something along the lines of like, well, the Elixir part was easy and really sane and I was able to grok it in the learning curve was like great and really approachable. And, you know, solving X problem is still the case of, of solving X problem. So it's like learning to think in GraphQL was the challenge there. But thinking about how to solve for that in Elixir was something that Absinthe made easy. Um, and that's something that I continue to love about Elixir. Like the learning curve is, like I said, really approachable. And I think it just lets people be really productive by letting them focus on the hard part of the problem and like kind of just taking over the easy stuff. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it does let you focus on the harder parts. Um, I, I think the only two things that were things to understand getting into the absence structure were understanding the difference between like the object and the input. So the input is not going to be the same as the object. And for some reason, that was hard for me to, to put together at first. But it's kind of like thinking about a change that, you know, you're not going to necessarily, you can just add what you need and the change that will turn that into the struct. But that's also from the front end, like as a developing on the front end and figuring out what inputs we need and what types we need, they're not going to be the same as the thing that is coming back from us, which is an important distinction. And then also understanding um, interfaces that we use. I'm not sure if you guys um, are familiar with those, yet, but it's um, like when we have an asset, we have maybe multiple iterations of that asset. So we have like an image asset or a video asset. And we use the interface to say which, which uh, fields are required and then they can be extended upon, um, which provides also a nice type from the front end to then call on the result of any of those queries and say, okay, well, I know I'm going to get all of these for this asset type, but on a video asset, I'm also going to ask for um, like the FPS or something like that. And on an image type, I'm going to ask for thing. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things there that we've been able to leverage because of this kind of type that Absence provides for us as well. It sounds like that's one way, and this is another question that I was curious to get your thoughts on. It sounds like that's one way that Elixir is actually like a really great choice and a really nice fit for working with GraphQL. So I'm curious if you can elaborate on, are there things about Elixir that make it sort of right for GraphQL or right for working with this technology? Um, I think that the even though Elixir is not strongly typed, we use the idea of pattern matching in a way that is really useful when we are responding to queries and responding to mutation requests, um, because we can go through and, and match on the type of input that the user is sending us and the type of data that we're getting back is a really nice way of Elixir and GraphQL providing to the clients all the data they need to make a successful request. So even though it's not strongly typed, it feels like it plays really well with the idea of typing all of the all of the queries, all of the inputs, um, mutations that we need. And then if you use it in conjunction on the front end with TypeScript, which we're doing, uh, it, it's the full range of being able to know before you make a mistake that this query is not going to work or that what you're getting back is not what you're expecting. Um, I've found it really enjoyable to work on both the front and the back end of this because of that, uh, because of the technologies that we've chosen on both sides. It just feels like before 
before you start running your your program, you're going to know that this is not what you've expected to get back from this this query or this mutation. That's exciting. I'm actually uh, I did my first work with GraphQL like two weeks ago. Started diving into an existing code base that uses GraphQL heavily, and I think. My coming week is likely to involve TypeScript and uh, the front-end side of that very that very thing. I will say I found approaching Absinthe with an existing code base a little bit intimidating just in the sense that figuring out what was this code base's way of using Absinthe versus what is actual Absinthe and what of this is actual GraphQL and just bringing and teasing all those things apart was a bit of a challenge. But once I started to grok the code base and the absent parts and the GraphQL parts and what was actually what, I also found like absent is a very nice and convenient way of creating this. And I'm, I was positively surprised by both GraphQL, which I wasn't sold on before trying it, and, and absent for creating it. So even writing tests feels nice and friendly. And Compared to REST, I really look forward to working from the front end where you can just like, okay, these are the things I need and I can actually know what I can ask for. Like just the fact that it exposes the contract as part of the entire language and entire query deals hell. It's just, that's incredibly useful. My first experience with GraphQL was terrible because I was under a heavy crunch and trying to pull data out of Cloudflare. And the only docs were like, yeah, we use GraphQL. And the idea was basically you know, put it into a GraphQL client and build your query. You'll be fine. But if you don't know that, oh, it was rough. Yeah, I think the first time I tried to use GraphQL, it was a tutorial, maybe with Gatsby or something that I was trying to, and I it was so magical that I think I just stopped <laughs> trying to use it. Because it didn't make sense. I didn't understand the background of it. I didn't understand the theory of why it was something. Obviously, when you say, oh, well, you can just ask for what you want. It sounds like too good to be true. And and I think sometimes it can be. Like you can introduce a lot of performance concerns if you're just asking for anything you want in in like a not like not thoughtful way. But yeah, I mean, I think that coming into building the GraphQL proxy, like having that be an introduction was a really interesting way of coming into GraphQL because there was no magic in what I was looking at when it was calling the REST endpoints and mushing together the responses and then delivering it back. And there was we had to manually do all the type checking for the, the input and the objects and the queries and everything. And so getting that out and putting it into the back end and kind of like seeing the the transformation of it like has really been interesting because now obviously our backend is not calling the rest endpoints. We're calling our business logic functions from the resolvers in GraphQL in absence. But but like having to see us go through that process was a much better introduction to coming into it cold. I think in an existing project, it would it would be really difficult to sort of parse out what was happening there. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at elixirmix.com slash Raygun.
Yeah, I think one thing that I really like is the fact that you no longer need a separate tool to document your APIs. It's built into GraphQL. So I can say goodbye to, to Swagger and all the accompanying tools that come along with it. That's been, uh, that's been pretty nice. I've enjoyed that. Yeah, because I feel like when it's optional to document your API, it's never going to happen. Like, okay, I should say it's never going to happen. But like, look, you're trying to deliver something for your business and the documentation piece of it so often falls to the wayside and it really is a way of shooting yourself in the foot. And this is something that's just kind of top of mind for me because the insights product at GitHub that I work on, we've been undertaking an effort the past few months or actually very close to shipping. We're very excited to kind of, <laughs> sometimes I say, oh, we were just swapping out the database because that's kind of what we were doing. And if, for our listeners who can't see, I've just put air quotes around just like, no big deal. We're just swapping out the database. So what we were really doing is we were swapping out the database. The legacy database was, which was this product called Orango, which I'd previously never heard of. I don't know if anybody has worked with it for a MSSQL database that was being worked on and designed and implemented for us by some members of like our Azure DevOps, you know, something coming out of like the Microsoft world from the merger. And the way that you access data is via an OData API. And I actually had never heard of OData prior to this either. It's like another API standard contract. And of course, we didn't like do a ton of work to document the API that was being exposed to us to access this MSSQL database. And there's like a ticket that's on the top of our board now that's like, okay, the next thing we're going to do after we ship is go back and document it. But of course, it, it made it kind of slow going when it came to accessing those endpoints, you know, debugging things, et cetera, which is, of course, not to knock any of my team members who all work exceptionally hard and very well together to deliver this product. But I think that just happens so much, right? Like, okay, we have the ticket to document the thing and like, we're going to get to it after we ship because the main thing is that we ship it. So the fact that GraphQL, you know, comes with that discoverability more or less for free, I think makes it such a powerful tool and a compelling choice. Yeah, my coworker has made it his mission to document our REST API. We have documentation, but it's not totally covered, obviously. He has instituted awards for people who make documentation when they're updating an endpoint. I am currently the forerunner with one documentation. How did I know you were going to say that. <laughs> That's it's the forerunner. I don't he sent me a, a picture of a trophy with my name on it, I want to say. So hopefully it's trophy. a trophy with my name on it. But <laughs> I think I'll have to make more documentation to actually keep myself in in first place since I only have one <laughs> commit. Yeah, because I mean really you could be knocked down at, at any time with very little effort. So if you want that trophy, exactly. I think you're gonna have to the bar is low. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, add one more piece of documentation and he'll actually ship the trophy to you. No, I think that's that lines up with my experience as well. Like, oh, we're making an API and this time it's going to be different. It's going to be well documented. It's going to be self-documenting because that's what happens when you use Swagger, I guess. And the first two entities are really well documented. And then we had to do the thing, you know, uh, well, you know where it goes. Yeah, I think it's. I think it just comes like with the territory. Like there, I think there are a few libraries in the uh, Elixir ecosystem that do like automatic Swagger doc generation. And this this isn't a knock at you know any of those libraries. I just found it to be like cumbersome, no matter how it's done, regardless of what the DSL is, uh, you know, with, with the macros and whatnot. Like I always found it cumbersome, and I always end up like Lars said after the first two endpoints. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it later. And then the problem with doing it later is you're your documentation doesn't always align with what you actually did. So like, you know, maybe somewhere you're doing like, you know, camel case, somewhere you're doing snake case. And then your, then your user, unfortunately, tells you that your docs are broken and uh, you look like a, like a bad guy. So yeah, I definitely like that it's built into Absinthe and it, you know, with the DSL that you get from Absinthe, it kind of guides you so that you don't shoot yourself in the foot and you don't get your tickets assigned to you for poor documentation. Not that anyone here has ever had that happen to them. Obviously. Definitely not. Um, no, it's Would been an, a, an amazing experience on the client side as well. I've really enjoyed like being a, a consumer of GraphQL and using Graphical to to spec out my requests first and figure out what exactly is available there. It, it's been really enjoyable on both sides of the experience and, and just having the self-documentation, which for 
at this point, being really good about using descriptions. <laughs> so we're starting off on the right foot there. But even if we get lazy, it will still be there for the client, which I think just gives some so much more flexibility and so much more control as you're building out your client experience. So actually, I want to talk about graphical effect because I recently stopped using graphical because the latest version of Postman has some really nice utilities built in for working with GraphQL, which I only discovered after a super fun day in which I couldn't get graphical to like return anything for me. It would return like a 400 or something, even though the server was running and the server wouldn't receive a request. Like I'd be looking at the server logs and there'd be no requests coming through. So after debugging this for like an hour or something, I decided to just kind of like throw in the towel and try a different client. And I started exploring Postman. I didn't know Postman could even do GraphQL, but then I upgraded it and it turns out that it can. Anyway, long story short, it wasn't GraphQL's fault. I had like a ghost phantom process or something running somewhere that was occupying that port. But long story short, it brought me to working with Postman for GraphQL. And I've actually been really enjoying it because I like sort of being in that one interface, whether you're using REST or let's say OData or GraphQL. And I like, um, maybe we can do this with graphical. And I've never really tried like how you can sort of Postman just has this really nice organized structure for like creating a folder and saving all your requests and makes it really easy to work with the request headers. I've just been enjoying the UI and all the little niceties. So curious if anyone has strong preferences or arguments for graphical over Postman or some other tool. So I've used Postman before. I am not a huge fan of it. I find it to be super like heavyweight and I actually prefer uh, Insomnia, which is like a Postman competitor. But I think they kind of favor more like the lightweight like client as opposed to the heavyweight because i know like with postman you can also set up like test suites and all that kind of stuff so oh, it looks yeah. like it's, it it's like, so it's like a huge tool and yeah. uh you I mean, could make a proxy uses... api in postman for example yeah, and, yeah. For, for someone who uses vim day in day out i like that you know that minimalist style so insomnia is usually what i use for graphql you're saying insomnia not curl then yeah i would have expected curl from a big big vim user actually there was a vim plugin where you can define like all your Oh, I can't remember what the name of it is now, but it was an HTTP client as a Vim plugin, and you could just define all your like queries that way. And I did use that for a while. I'm not gonna lie, but alas, I've I've abandoned that, and I'm now an I am an insomniac. Yeah, I think the last time I used like the time with I was fighting with Cloudflare, I used something like Insomnia. I think I think I definitely tried Insomnia. I don't remember if it was the one I ended up using, but also like Electron app, Alex, is that minimalist? Is it so for GraphQL? I agree, but yeah, I usually just use curl for HTTP REST calls. So I, I'm still, you know, I'm still true to my CLI roots there. It's okay. I don't think curl has support for like GraphQL introspection and self-documenting features. That no, would that, be a, a little bit the, of bloat for that. Yeah, all the new lines really throw you off too when you try to make a query. So I, uh, that, that, that's usually where I draw the line. Anytime I have to do like hardcore escaping, it's it's game over. Time to use a time to use the GUI. I have not used Postman, but that is really cool. I'm gonna look at it, and it did just remind me of the one thing in the in the front end that has been difficult, which I've talked to Sophie about before, which is Apollo. I don't know if you wanna have thoughts about that, Sophie. Because I know you've done a little I bit with it. Just feel like it's so opaque to me, like reading through an existing React code base that's like using Apollo and GraphQL. I feel like I can't find anything. I don't know where anything is or where it's happening. I'm finding like tracing the code flow to be really frustrating. And I'm finding the documentation to also be sort of hard to read and, and kind of unhelpful. And it's just frustrating. And my caveat is that I like barely know JavaScript anymore, but it's, I'm finding it hard to, to kind of put the pieces together. Yeah, one of the things that I recently ran into with Apollo that has actually been the the thing that I keep going back to, like, I'm so glad I understand what this bug is now, because it's, it's come up so many times is the way that Apollo, it's caching strategy for queries. This is exactly um, I remember I asked you this question in Slack, and I was so stuck on it. And I also hated the solution, but please continue. Yeah, it's crazy because the the error, I don't know if it was the same error that you were it was surfacing for you, but the error that was surfacing was an, invi- an invariant violation error. And it, there was very little like clues to how, to what, what was going wrong and what it was trying to tell me. And a coworker went into Apollo source code <laughs> to like start debugging and like figuring out what was happening. 
And it turns out that all it is is when you're when you're updating your cash and you're you, you make a call and you have some options, you can do an optimistic response and then you can do the update query or like a reset query or refetch query, query something like that. But if you do the update yeah, refetch, query, I think. you have to provide it with the exact same variables as the query currently has. And you have to yeah. make sure that you're not adding any fields or like removing any fields from like what you're asking for, because otherwise it doesn't see it as the same query and it won't update it. And instead you'll get some opaque error about it, which sounds really, really obvious when you say it out loud. Like, yeah, it just needs the same exact thing. But it was one of those things that was just a mental like shift. Like, why can't you just give me the stack? Like I'm asking for it back. And it was like, well, you didn't give me the exact same parameters that you gave me the first time. So I don't know that this is the same query at all, which, you know, totally makes sense now. But for anybody that's been struggling with that, like we were, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely struggle with this. This is, I don't know if it was like the exact same problem that I was having where I wasn't using the same variables and getting a very vague, like invariant error, but this problem space, right? Of like, okay, something maybe has changed in this component in this separate section of the page over here. And now I want as a consequence of that to update or refresh or refresh the data that's being controlled and managed and maintained by this component over there. That to me, I feel like has always been very challenging in React and various JavaScript frameworks. And when I encountered this, uh, it was when I was kind of like deep in working on one of the two components chapters that's going to be in our upcoming live view book with Prague and just sort of like how elegant and simple this overall state management system is in live view, right? You've really got one master parent process that's maintaining the state for your entire single page. And however, if you do want components, let's say live view components to communicate or cause a change in another component or another live view, like super easy to do. It's like all really managed on the back end in a way that feels so sane and elegant, but so hard to wrap your head around this the same problem in JavaScript or in React or Apollo. And so it felt especially icky to me to be confronted with that when I was kind of writing about this beautiful system for managing state. Really, that reflects the state of your entire application with ease with LiveView. And are you going to be using LiveView anytime soon in production? I mean, definitely not, but we don't have any Elixir uh, currently uh, at GitHub, but I have been learning so much from working on this book with Bruce and I'm very excited to get it out into the world. And I think Meryl is looking like currently going to be one of our early readers, our technical reviewers. So hopefully she'll have some good feedback for us soon. But Sophie, I think I've seen like the head honcho at GitHub wax poetic about like the power of Erlang and how it's only held back by its syntax. And then he's been increasingly enthusiastic about Elixir and his Twitter. So I think you don't say. Did you get to his ear or something? (laughs) Not me personally, but uh, Bruce Williams, who is one of the creators of Absinthe and the author of the book that Meryl recommended, is also at GitHub. And I feel like I've mentioned this before. He has some some ideas and some plans. So nothing concrete yet, certainly not on the roadmap, but I'm I'm keeping my eyes out and I think you should too. Interesting. What else do we have on deck here? So you two hosted the purple carpet thing. Yeah. How did that come about? It's an, I think it's a very like novel about? idea for for introducing. It's really fun. Yeah, the Elixir comps. Whose idea yeah, was that? Yeah, it seems like it turned out very well. Very well. Yeah. I feel like you looped me into it at, after the original thought was to have sort of like a um, virtual mixer for the speakers, like a replacement for the speakers dinner. And during our conversation, the purple carpet idea. Yeah, came up. that's right. Yeah, I think it was Jim Fries of ElixirConf reached out to us about the idea of doing like virtual speakers dinner. And then someone who was working with him, I think from Smart Logic, suggested, oh, make it like a red carpet, right? Like sort of a play on a fancy Hollywood event. And then it was either me or you, Meryl, that came up with a purple carpet pun because I think our pun game collectively is pretty strong. But it was it was so great. It was so fun. I think. Yeah, I feel like we've said this before when we chatted about it after ElixirConf, but it's the first event that I've ever participated in that really put all of the speakers in dialogue in that way. Uh, normally, you know, you go to a speaker's dinner and A, like it's not open to the public. You're not live streaming like a real, you know, in-person speaker's dinner. 
and me, like, you know, you, you mingle, you mix around, you talk to a few different people, but you don't really get a chance to kind of see the topics and themes of really everybody's talk kind of come in and relate to and play off of one another. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about it. In addition to the fact that it was just fun and we got to talk about vacuum cleaners, which is one of my passions. Yeah, I agree. It was much more natural than I thought it was going to be. I think often when you have these like Zoom hangouts, well, I think coming also from a hybrid workplace before now, the Zoom hangout never really worked well in a hybrid way when you have some people in person and some people that are remote. And I guess learning to be all remote was useful. But then also how easily it flowed and how easily it felt that people were able to hand raise and and contribute and they flowed in and out of the room um, in a way that was like, oh, well, this is sort of just like hanging out at a speaker's dinner, but everybody has a chance to interject something and there's there's more variety than we might have had normally. That was really fun. And the horoscopes were fun, which actually brings me to seeing as we're coming to the end of our episode, something that I think we should do, which is just a real quick tower reading, just maybe like one card. I'm going to use the cards that Meryl actually gave me for Christmas last year. So I feel like it's very appropriate. And if there are no objections, I feel like oh, we'll pull nice. a card for Meryl. Yes, thank you. I've never done this over Zoom before. So I think what I'm going to do is like, I'm going to be going through the cards and you tell me when to stop. Um, and let's just kind of do an abbreviated version. So instead of a past, present, future spread, we'll just pull a future card. Perfect. Okay. Love it. Focus on your future and tell me when okay. to stop. Are you going? Uh-huh. Stop. Okay. All right. I'm going to flip it over facing you, I guess. And then if it's up, you know, if it's facing you, if it's upright, it'll be the card in its regular form. All right. What do we have here? It says page of pentacles. Page of pentacles. Okay. So just to describe it for our listeners who do not see us right now, it's sort of like a grayish looking man with a feather covered hat yeah with a beautiful watercolor background so I'm going to open up this little booklet because of course I don't know what anything means unless I look it up page of Wait, was it was it upright it was it's important you, yeah okay good. yes I know because Just the direction matters yeah the direction matters Okay, page of pentacles, looking it up. Are you reading spoilers for your tarot reading? <laughs> yeah, you can't do that, Meryl. Besides, I'm sorry. I, got I mean, they're roughly the same. You got too excited. Okay, a young person, serious, scholarly, hardworking, may denote scholarship and respect for new ideas. Pretty good, pretty good. What does this bring up for you about your future? Wow. Does this feel relevant at all? It I mean, feels like on the offing. Honestly, it's been really exciting for me to to start delving more into actually studying actually studying on the on the side because of all the new tech that we're using it's mm. I feel like often I, I learn through doing and I learn through just working on the product but lately I've been doing a lot of more independent studying and like I said I'm reading the crafting GraphQL EPIs book but I'm also reading another one the practitioner's guide to graph data just as a way to understand the bigger concept around GraphQL and where it came from and that's been a really helpful way of shifting my mindset, even though that's not something that we're like using under the hood. Um, so I think that that's been a trend that I've been working on, especially as we're nearing quarantine two, the second, uh, yeah, <laughs> the second one. Stock up um, on textbooks for the next. Yeah. Quarantine. So it's it's been a good hobby though, and it's been a good way of feeling more connected to the work and the future of the work that we're doing. Very appropriate. Love it. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. that's that's interesting to hear that you've kind of been doing more studying because I think I'm I'm very similar to to you. I like to learn by just building stuff and getting my hands dirty. And I tend to be very lazy when it comes to reading books. Don't tell anyone that hopefully will read the book that I'm writing, but I probably wouldn't read it. So no, just kidding. I would definitely read this book. And that's just kind of like how I learn. So it's interesting to hear that you're taking the time to do the studying and that it's been you know, really beneficial for you. That's kind of a little bit inspiring to me. Yeah, right, I think so. it's, in, yeah. I'm not well, I just to say, yeah. like, I think that the kind of books that make me interested are not the books that, like, you read it and then you go do the code and then you read it and do the code. Mm-hmm. It's like the books that are talking more about, like, the big picture and the theory of everything 
are much more easy for me to get into and to like feel like they're useful in my day to day because I feel like you can practice and you can get code reviews and you can talk to smarter people than you about like your syntax and like the way that you're building something. But to get to the fundamentals of it, it feels really useful to have a more theory approached book if you're going to read a book at all. So I would recommend this one if anybody's interested in like sort of getting a bigger picture of of the structure that GraphQL has come from and like what what it's trying to like engender about a new way of looking at relationships in data. Yeah, thank you for that recommendation. So just to repeat, that's the Practitioner's Guide to Graph Data, and we'll put the link in the show notes. I'm sort of feeling like anything that you learn pulled from that might make an excellent blog post. Just something to keep in mind. Yeah, I feel like that's something that people don't write about as much in like a casual way. Most people tend to write blog posts that are like how to do this thing or here's how I solve this problem. Um, and it might be cool to kind of see some of those bigger picture ideas popularized and to kind of learn from the way that you and other people are engaging with them. And then you send a pull request to beanbloggers.com to actually be featured on the web ring. There you go. That's right. Oh my gosh. You get famous from there. And that's how I get famous. Was that part of the tarot? Do I become famous from my scholarly pursuit? Pretty sure. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Let's say that. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, so we are just about out of time, so we'll conclude it with some picks if anyone has any recommendations for our listeners and we'll start with Lars. Yeah, so I've been looking at a library from BitCrowd called SSH Kit. I've only skimmed it, but the general idea of this starts with like the Erlang standard library having all the SSH in it already. And I imagine they built on top of that. But basically for running commands on remote servers, that's what it's for. And I've got this idea in my head that I want to build an Elixir project that deploys itself. So you just run a mixed task, like deploy me to this server, please. And it can build itself in a Docker, investigate if the server is this or that, and like push itself over there, set itself up. Basically, Big plus plus. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the problem with the Elixir ecosystem, I guess. There's a lot of libraries that make you spawn ideas that you don't have time for. So... Someone pay me to work on this, please. Very true. Uh, thank you for that recommendation. Anything from you, Alan? Yeah, so I got two picks today. So given that I've been doing this podcasting business for a little while now, I figured it was time to invest in a decent sounding microphone. Last week I recorded on it. Turns out I did not change the Zoom settings. So I was talking into the mic, but the laptop was still picking it up. I think today it's it's working out. So Shoot me a tweet if I sound any better today or worse. You know, I'll, I'll chuck it in the trash. So uh, I picked up the Elgato Wave 3 for anyone interested. So that's pick number one. Pick number two, I think I'm going to go with the Beam Telemetry uh, GitHub org because uh, I've been leveraging that quite a bit for uh, PromX. Uh, I've been using telemetry metrics. So there's also a telemetry Prometheus library in there. And so I've been making good use of all those libraries for Promix. So I definitely uh, recommend checking it out. Very cool. Yeah, I'll plus one, the Beam Telemetry Org. It's just an excellent resource. And uh, I haven't worked with the like Telemetry Prometheus, whatever you want to call it, adapter library too much outside of like a little toy app. And I thought it was pretty easy to work with. And so it's nice to hear that you're enjoying that as well. Um, Meryl, any picks? I feel like I gave my programming pick, which is this... Yeah, Look. we're going to definitely add these in. We've got the Practitioner's Guide to Graph Data, and you also mentioned crafting GraphQL APIs in Elixir with Absinthe from Pragprog. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and do a non-programming pick, which is a show that I started watching that is not new, but has a fourth season coming out called Search Party. 
Love Search Party. Oh I my god, they're making a fourth season. It's so they're good. making a fourth season. I, can't I just finished this. it. I can't believe we don't, haven't talked about this. Don't you kind this. of hate her, but you also yes. love her? Like, she's awful, yes. but... Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, There's I no way to it. talk about this kind of without ruining the big twist, yeah. but... All, yeah. all I can say is that every episode I watched, I was like, every time it turned off, I was like, goodbye, friends. I'll see you next time. Yeah. And you're just, like, so invested in all of these characters, and it's very bingeable. It's very short episodes, but mm-hmm. the character development is absolutely amazing. And John Early is so funny. So funny. Absolutely. What is this on? What was it on? I, thought, I watched HBO it on Max. Amazon. Is it on HBO Max? I watched it on Amazon. It's now on Prime HBO Max. Amazon I don't think Video. it was. Yeah. It's, um, um, what's the premise? It's like a young woman in Brooklyn. Her life is kind of boring. I think she sees like something about an old Facebook friend of hers is has gone missing. And she just sort of like becomes obsessed with this mystery. And it really spirals way out of control and it's from maybe from arrested development if you it's guys maybe and i love that. her she's so what's her name and Allie she's an adult now <laughs> yeah um yeah i can't believe we haven't talked about this because it's absolutely one of my favorite things that i have seen it's so great far. yeah it's great all right also great. now starting to binge the sopranos which i had never watched i i actually did that last year we watched them all because i had never really watched it either yeah and it's it's good it feels very dated to me um, but also very familiar. Yeah, you know, my family is Italian and from New Jersey. Exactly. So sometimes it hits. We're not in the market to clarify, but you know, <laughs> that's what they all that say. So you... it's close from home. Oh, no idea what you're talking about. The freshest uh, picks on Elixir Mix Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very timely. I don't know if I have any picks. I just have a general thing in my life that I'm very excited about, which is that I got a new couch. My old couch was. It was really, it was truly awful. You didn't want to sit on it at all. The cushions were sort of like rounded, like overstuffed and rounded. So a lot of people would say that it would just like sort of fight you. You would sit down on it. Maybe you want to watch a movie or something. And by the end of the movie, you would just be in a terrible mood. And it would be because of the couch. But we put up with it for years, finally caved. And the new couch is just a dream come true. So it's not really like a specific recommendation to get this exact couch. But maybe if there's something in your life that you've been putting off, like getting a new couch just do yourself a favor since no one's leaving home this winter and <laughs> what is the couch so plug it? the i'll plug it it's the eddie i think it's what it's called eddie couch from west elm i think because i'm looking at it now and i think it was on sale when we bought it because i don't i don't think that we spent this on it but it's just really comfortable and it has one of those like shave cushion things on it so you can like actually stretch out uh, when my dad saw it, he called it a napping platform, which is exactly right. Yeah. Get you a napping platform for the winter that we're about to have. All right. So thank you for joining us, Merle. This has been definitely a treat. Super fun. And hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was so fun to be here. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.